Welcome to Crossbridge. If you're a guest with us today, I am so glad that you're here. And my hope for you is the same as it is for everyone that comes to Crossbridge. And that simply is that you would be able to take one step in your faith towards Jesus, because this, this is what we're all about. You know, some of my favorite conversations are the ones where my mind is challenged and I really need to think through what other people have said. I just love these types of conversations. I'm not talking about the fights or the arguments. Those are not my favorite types of conversations. But the ones where I'm left thinking, I'm left wondering for days or for weeks. This might sound like a nightmare for some of you. I completely get that. But I've wondered a lot recently. Why do I gravitate towards these heavy and these deep conversations? And, and I know just saying that out loud probably gives some of you insight into what I'm talking about with like hard things. You know, questions like that even exhaust me. Like, I get it. But the truth is, my mental and my emotional life might be a little more pleasant if I wasn't always thinking about these giant ideas and concepts. It might sound silly to say, but when we set up this Jenga tower right here two weeks ago, when Pastor Will, Becky, and I started playing a game just for fun, a realization in my head and in my soul all of a sudden just connected. I began to understand why I go after deep and meaty things in life. When we were playing each other, it was funny because the goal when we're against each other is to mess each other up, right? That's the goal. You pull out the bottom blocks and know that you can get them. But when we shifted to work together to see how high the tower could go, I watched how we cared more about the supports on the side. You know, supporting the tower with these side blocks, and not just that, but supporting each other and encouraging each other as we build. I'm realizing that I lean in to these big ideas and questions, this big stuff so much because I think the truth is I want the tower of my life and my faith to be as sturdy as possible. I want to be ready for the struggles, the pain, and the suffering that are guaranteed for all of us in life. I, I want to know as best as I can, at, at the given moment of where I am, at whatever capacity I have, I want to know what I believe. Maybe you don't have to go through all the mental, psychological, and philosophical hoops that I feel like I do, but I think that we all want this, don't we? Even more, I, I think that we all need this more than we realize. Unfortunately, I, I think too many of us have mistaken these center blocks here as the side blocks of our faith. And when we do this, our faith, it, we know this becomes weak, it becomes wobbly, and it's really hard to build on nothing but center blocks. And our faith begins when trials, temptations, or even as Becky talked about last week, heretical teachings blow through our lives. Our faith then topples instead of increasing. So as we continue in our summer series, I believe, we're hoping that everyone, everyone will get the help that they need to establish some of these outside blocks 
to their own Jenga tower of faith. And that we could keep reminding each other of what's the most important things, because the truth is we need to work together, not against each other. This whole journey in our faith is about support, not competition. Now listen, as we talk about this, if you're with us today and, and you're just dropping in as a guest or you've been with us for a while and you are not a disciple of Jesus, I need to tell you I am so glad that you are here. And you might not know this, but we are going through the Apostles' Creed together. It's, it's like this second century statement that all the followers of Jesus repeated when they got baptized, and often they repeated it when they were gathering together. If you haven't ever read it, it's this amazing series where as you, we go through it together, you're going to get an idea, a really good idea of what the Christian faith should be all about. And while it's not going to explain everything that we have in the Bible and its theology, its doctrine, Listen, for its size, it does a great job of guiding us on some of our side Jenga blocks. So wherever you are today, would you do me a favor? Would you just stand up and like generations of Christ followers before us, would you recite the Apostles' Creed with me? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. You could be seated wherever it is that you are. You know, two weeks ago, we explored the first phrase of this. We explored God, the Father Almighty, and the creator of everything. And when we say everything, we mean the physical and the spiritual. And last week, Becky kind of walked us through the impossible, right? The impossible, the idea of the mystery of our faith found in Jesus, that he is both 100% God and 100% man, not 50-50. And, and I need to tell you, that, that was not an easy message to prepare or to craft or to deliver. Um, Becky, wherever you are, I just want to say thank you for your commitment to the Bible and for taking on this beast of a topic. I'm very proud of you and thankful you're part of our team here and our faith in building us up. But we're going to stay on the topic of Jesus for the next three weeks. And here's why. Not only is it central and take up two-thirds of this creed, but he's central to our faith as Christians. Today, we're going to look at the two blocks. And the two blocks simply are, he suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, died, and was buried. Let's start with our first block, if you will. 
Up to this point, when we look at this creed, there's been no mention of, of like the fall of man that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. There's no mention of original sin or this idea of sin, things that we've done wrong. And yet we find ourselves using the word suffered. Isn't that weird? When God comes into the world through the person of Jesus, he is met with violent resistance. The creatures that he has created have now turned against their creator. And Jesus isn't born into like this global utopia, right? People all around him are angry. They're angry at the governments. They're angry at families. They're angry at God because they're angry at governments and their family, right? It's so frustrating and violent all around Jesus, and it has been for thousands of years. You know, one of the things that I do like so much about this creed is that it doesn't try to include every single detail about Jesus's life. It really focuses in on like the larger story, the points that, that are the most important, and it directs our attention to Jesus's identity, both as divine and human, that, that he's the son of God and Mary's son. But it doesn't just ignore everything from his birth to his death. Instead, it sums up Jesus's whole life the same way that the earliest followers of Jesus had summed up his life, and it was in one word, suffered. The word suffering. And you know what's funny is Jesus himself uses this word to describe his life. And it really is the most accurate way that his future followers could describe his life when they talked about what it meant to follow him. In his biography, in Jesus's biography written by Dr. Luke, we find that after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, he begins to talk to his disciples who were all sorts of distraught. And it makes sense. And in chapter 24, verses 25 and 26, it says, then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote about in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to, what's that word, suffer all these things before entering his glory. Jesus prepped his disciples for three years, but still they had trouble seeing their Lord, their Messiah, this coming king, right, as one who would have to suffer. But as they began to search the scriptures after that moment, more and more they could see why this was part of God's plan. And I know, again, that might sound really odd, that pain was part of God's plan for Jesus, but we're going to see why when we unpack our second block together. So just keep that there in the back of your head for a second. As the church began to spread in the first century, we constantly see that the apostles talked about this. And the apostle Paul, even, when he's telling the story of Jesus as he went all over the place, it's the same. For instance, in, in Acts 17, we find the Apostle Paul in the city of Thessalonica. And in that chapter, verses 2 and 3, we read, As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise again from the dead. And then he says, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Suffering was the word that the followers of Jesus continued to use to teach others about their Messiah. 
I mean, if you're trying to convince people to follow what you believe, why would you ever highlight suffering and a suffering life as like the draw? Why would you celebrate the central figure's suffering? Well, remember, Jesus was born into a, will, a world filled with what? It was filled with suffering. Not just for him, but for everyone around him. And, and we know this, right? We know that the world is hard. Right? In the great words of the dread pirate Roberts to Princess Buttercup, life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling you something. So Jesus, in his 100% humanity, suffered and he experienced pain. But not just because he was human, but because it serves an even greater purpose. You know, the author of Hebrews, he gives us some insight into this in chapter 2, verse 18, where we read, since he himself, Jesus, has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Jesus suffered. He experienced this universal pain of what it means to be human so that he might help us as we walk through life. I do think Christians today are, are more tempted by the allure of a triumphant faith, right? Or, or, or by this distorted gospel that promises when you trust in Jesus, you'll find worldly satisfactions and success. But we're baptized into the way of a suffering Lord who lays on his followers not a crown, but a cross. We like to celebrate all that we've received from our triumphant king, right? That he's defeated death. He's purchased a place for us in heaven with him. Yes, that's true. But as Paul tells the church in Rome, the church at the very center of all this pain that this is written around, in chapter 8, verse 17, he says to them, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are our heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share in his glory... We must also share his suffering. We will share Christ's glory, yes, to the extent that we also share in his sufferings. We're going to touch on that in a second again when we finish this phrase of the creed, but it's important we understand the suffering. And it's also, let's just look really quick at the only other man mentioned in this creed, Pontius Pilate. What a name, right? What a name. Now, please hear me. This name is not inserted in here to place blame on Pilate at all. It's actually put here to ground this story into history. We got to remember that um, when this was written, there's no way of saying, well, in 33 AD or whatever timing Jesus died, dating like that didn't exist. If you look over the history and the math of calendars and dates, you'd learn that it's actually always been changing based on who's in charge. They could change the dates. Still to this day, different cultures carry different calendars. Seriously, right now, if you have an iPhone, you could go into your settings and you could change your region and your settings to the calendar of a Buddhist calendar. Guess what? It's now the year 2564 BE. You got like way past 2020, right? Europe didn't take the Gregorian calendar that we all work off of. They didn't adopt it until I think it was about like 1582. A lot happened before 1582, right? So how do you keep track of time? You do so with anchors to history. Real stories need anchors. 
And this is why the creed mentions Pilate. It's not just this list of concepts and ideas. This whole creed is centered around a story, summed up around the word suffering. But it's a story that happened in a real place, in a real time, with real people. And there are numerous historians from the first century who recorded this same story. I'm not talking about the writers of the biographies of Jesus, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? It'd be easy to say, well, sure, they just made it up together. Fine, whatever. I'm talking about guys like Josephus, you know, this first century Jewish historian. He's a guy who recorded all the same events that we read about in the Gospels, the story of Jesus. He writes about them, and he writes about so much more. Here's what's even crazier. He was not a follower of Jesus. He was just a crazy good historian. Then there's the Roman historian, Tacitus. This guy is, is widely regarded as one of the greatest Roman historians by modern scholars today. He wrote about everything in Roman culture, everything. And as someone who didn't follow Jesus himself, he writes about the crucifixion of Jesus as part of Roman history. One of the things that he writes, he, he actually says Christus, and this is the Latin for Christ that he would use. Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is an anchor for the Jewish and the Roman history of the first century. His name in this creed grounds us in actual recorded history. So whether you've placed your trust in Jesus as the Messiah or not, there's no arguing about if he really existed, if he really walked and died on this earth. That is so important because there are people who turned the story of Jesus into this creation of myths like external realities that we could take from the life of Jesus and principles. They felt free to take this and mix it and join it together with other myths of the time. They, they were simply adding Jesus to this fictitious list of heroes like Becky talked about last week. His life wasn't fictitious. It wasn't made up. It, it wasn't just a culmination of a bunch of good ideas because a bunch of guys got together and decided to write a story. His life, his teachings were recorded by his followers and also by his enemies. His life and death truly are the center point of history. This is why we read the biographies of Jesus regularly, Crossbridge. Not only is he the center of history, but Jesus should be the center to all that we do as a community. When we soap as a church in soaping, um, this is just like, this is the way that we read the Bible together a chapter at a time as a community of faith building up each other, right? As we read through the Bible, you'll notice that we continue to read the biographies of Jesus more than we, we read anything else in the Bible. We just keep going back to them. And it's like, Jimmy, can't you pick something else? Sure I could. But we do this, and, and it's important because we do all that we can as a church to keep Jesus's life and his teachings at the center. We always want them on our minds. 
And we don't only read these stories of Jesus and his teachings with our minds. We need to be able to tell this with our lives. Well, we all respond differently to the story of Jesus. The story itself does not change. It is anchored. And the same Jesus, born of Mary, condemned by Pilate, is always at the center. So Pilate here is not mentioned as a villain but to inspire our faith on the actual, historical, physical life of the suffering Jesus. Our second block that we're going to look at is that he was crucified, died, and was buried. You know, most authors, historians, and scholars agree that this might be the most astonishing and, like, wild statement in the entire creed. And here's why. Because crucifixion wasn't just about death. It was about public disgrace. I don't really want to get into the details of the process of crucifixion with you, but I think that I can sum it up best in this way. That the Romans had crafted and had drawn up a public way of executing criminals and it was designed to take any sort of dignity and humanity that a person had left and strip that from them completely. It wasn't just about pain. It was about humiliation and alienation. Now, in a culture built on gaining honor and avoiding shame, being part of community, the idea of humiliation would have been even worse than the, any pain that you could have inflicted on the body. Being dishonored and cut off would have been far worse than any physical pain. You know, for the first and second century Christians, this would have been understood. But for us today, it just doesn't come across the same. I think this might be because we do all that we can to avoid physical pain. Um, this need to avoid physical pain, it's only gotten worse. Maybe I shouldn't say worse. It's only become more exaggerated in the last 25 years. For most of the 20th century, and you know, as we've learned more about the medical field, when you went to the doctor, you go to the hospital, they take your vital signs. That's the first thing that they do. We're all used to this, right? And they usually check the four biggies. They take your body temperature, your pulse rate, um, your respiration rate and your breathing, right? And they take your blood pressure. I still don't know what some of those numbers mean when they tell me. I just smile and go, is it good? Right? It, it doesn't really matter what we think or what we say to the doctor. Our body is going to tell doctors what we may want to hide. What's funny is around 1995, Dr. James Campbell, he made a push to add a fifth vital sign. The sign was pain. He said that pain should be treated as serious as all of these other signs that we're looking for. And so we did all that we could as a nation to avoid pain. Most researchers in the medical field agree that this was the beginning of our national opioid crisis. And in 2016, about 20 years after that, the American Medical Association started recommending that pain be removed as the fifth vital sign. Now, please hear me, by no means Am I saying that we should let people sit in pain and just suck it up and deal with it, right? That's not what I'm saying. But I say this to highlight how much our country hates 
any kind of physical pain. This is the lens that we look through. If it's going to hurt, don't do it. Or if it means you've got to work to get through it, just take this and make it easier. Don't deal with that. So when we look at the crucifixion, all we see is physical pain. But this isn't what anyone around Jesus at the time or the people for centuries who followed him would have seen in this phrase. They, they would have seen someone who was identified as a criminal, cast out of the human community, rejected by God and rejected by the world. This was literally a fate worse than death. The people who said this to begin with, they felt this. But I think Jesus felt this too. You know, he went to his death reciting a psalm of humiliation. In Matthew 27, in, in his biography, we hear Jesus actually quoting Psalm 22, a psalm that's written by King David. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? And if you jump down to verse 6, this psalm was on Jesus' mind. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. You know, Jesus didn't just feel the physical pain. He felt the shame, the rejection, and the isolation from God, his Father, and from everyone around him. He, he descended to the lowest rung on the social ladder. He, he, he became a slave, and he died a slave's death. Even though he possessed the highest honor, he embraced the worst disgrace. I might even be so bold as to say today that the world was saved by Jesus' shame. This, his shame, this is the scandalous message of the cross. And so for those early Christians to affirm and to announce that their Lord was crucified, it would be as shocking as if one of us today said, I'm putting my faith in someone who died in the electric chair. Right? Does it just make you stop and think, what? Right? It blows my mind to think about how openly, how boldly these followers of Jesus allowed their identities, who they were, to be wrapped up and associated with someone who was not respected by either the Roman or the Jewish standards of the time. He was so much less than, and in a culture that is built, both of those cultures built on acquiring honor, holding power. These followers, they followed and they took their identity from a man who taught humility and servanthood. And they lowered themselves. And that became the way that they identified with the life of Jesus. You know, when the Apostle Paul writes his letter to the church in Rome, where this is all created, you know, a hundred years later, but the tension in Rome is still the same. Do you know how he starts the letter to those churches? In Romans 1, the very first thing he says is, this letter is from Paul, a slave 
of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. Paul, someone who would have been known throughout the known world as a leader of this newly developing branch of Judaism called the Way, right? They didn't have their total identity yet. And, and, and Paul announces himself, how? The man, no, no, he says, I'm a slave. He announces himself as someone who's not his own, someone who is less than and owned by someone else, and that someone else is Jesus. For the early Christians, they admitted that their Lord was killed like a slave or a criminal. And so as a result, they too were mocked, persecuted, and killed like slaves and criminals. You know, I think deep. It messes with me, and I can't help but think of the differences between these original disciples of Jesus and Christians today, and specifically in the United States where the context of this church is, I can't figure out how, honestly, we've gotten to a place where we believe and we expect that the society around us at large is supposed to acknowledge and respect the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, when we, when we talk about our, we say things like our society has declared war on Christianity. And then many conservative Christians will back it up by saying things like, well, they're trying to stop us from saying Merry Christmas to each other. They're taking Christ out of Christmas. I can't believe that they're teaching these things. And you pick what these things are because everybody's got a different opinion. They're teaching these things in school and shouldn't do that. How can they give other religions in this country equal rights with Christianity? But the flip side's true too, right? More liberal Christians keep saying, well, just listen, there's no agenda from people to get rid of Christian values in our culture. That's not really an issue. The reason Christianity is declining in America isn't because of that. It's because you conservative Christians are far too narrow-minded, right? We, we need to get with the times, broaden what's acceptable. I, I, I think that our second century brothers and sisters who recited this creed in its earliest days would disagree with both sides. They would look at the liberal side and they would say things to us like, dude, are you kidding me? There absolutely is a conspiracy against God and against the gospel of Jesus. Absolutely people aren't going to like that. But then they would look at the conservative side and they would say that this conspiracy isn't new. This is not some invention by a bunch of people all of a sudden to try to destroy the morals and the religious fiber of your society. No, this has always existed. It's, it's existed since Genesis 3 when sin entered creation. That's why we need the saving work of Jesus. But it existed when Jesus was born and creation was against him. And when he walked on this earth leading ultimately to his suffering life and his death. It existed in the second century for these believers who lived under a constant threat of persecution and death and being burned on stakes to light Nero's garden at night. You know, I, I think, and I'm going to be bold to say, and if it frustrates you, I, I love you, but I'm going to say it anyway. If we could remove our heads from the U.S. soil that we live in, we would hear this same announcement from our brothers and sisters around the world. There are places in 2021 where announcing allegiance with Jesus publicly will have you dying a criminal's death right now. 
Being a Christian is nothing to be proud of in, the, in some of those societies. But they choose to believe because of deep faith, because of conviction, because their sides of their jangle walls are so strong. And for us, right now, I honestly think that we might be arguing over the wrong things. That we're sitting here trying to avoid pain. We're using logic to convince ourselves that, that things should be different in our civilized nation. It shouldn't be like this in the 21st century. Maybe that's because our faith has been more in a respected religious leader, not a convicted criminal. We, we expected, and I think we expect to be treated with respect because of our faith. And when in reality, that's really not the identity or the story of our master and our Messiah. What happened to Jesus has happened to every one of his followers throughout history. They have suffered. They have died and they have been buried. And so the question that I want to leave you with today is, what do you mean when you say, I believe? The answer to this question will determine which blocks of faith that you begin to lean on. Do you believe that trusting in Jesus means that you're better than those around you and you're glad you did that even though they didn't, that it gains you certain rights or privileges? Or do you believe that trusting in Jesus means you're called to living out a life like his, defined by suffering, service, defined by love? You know, I don't want you just to think about it, but I want you to search it out. Think about it. Take time to read the biographies of Jesus. Read his story and may the Holy Spirit draw you deeper into what it means when we proclaim, I believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Keep taking steps towards Jesus, and when they're hard, do me a favor this week. Celebrate your identity with Jesus this We're so glad you joined us today. We believe that steps of faith happen in community, and we would love for you to connect with us and grow in a small group at Crossbridge. Our chat hosts are dropping a link in the chat now so you can see all the virtual and in-person groups we have available. If you have questions or are not sure what group is best for you, shoot us a message at prayer at crossbridgecc.org. We can't wait to help you connect. We are all about loving God, loving people, and serving the world. If you want to give to help further that mission, you can head over to crossbridgecc.org give for all the ways you can contribute.